we see the magic, the magic in the middle is what we call psychological safety. And so if we can create an environment where everybody feels physically and emotionally safe, that's inclusive and accessible, where they can have fun and they can take risks, that environment will allow them to heal themselves and for them to see others in the community who are healing as well. They now see that there are other ways and that this is not just about them alone in their home, that there's a whole world out there. And so hope and optimism increase significantly. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Welcome to Pursuing Health. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Jackie Hilios, who is the Deputy Executive Director of The Phoenix, which is an addiction recovery program that uses physical activity and community friendships to support members on their sobriety journey. And in her role, she focuses on oversight and leadership and program design, implementation, evaluation, and expansion. Jackie is a former clinician who worked with youth and families struggling with mental illness and substance use disorders. And since joining the Phoenix in 2006, she's helped expand the model to 22 states and over 40 communities across the country, which is incredible and it continues to grow. So thank you, Jackie, so much for joining me. I am so excited for what we're about to get into on this conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I just want to start off with, I watched your TEDx talk and it was very moving and it was very clear that you just have this huge heart for helping people who often are labeled, marginalized, often don't have people to believe in them or advocate for them. And is that something that has always just been a part of you or where did that come from? Wow. Um, yeah, that actually, well, let me see. I attribute that to my mom. Um, okay. she was an amazing soul who cared about everyone. And, um, when I was a kid, we used to joke that my mom would bring home strays. Uh, mm. so there were always people at dinner who I didn't know that she met at work or she met at church that, you know, needed a place to stay or didn't have money for food or were mm-hmm. traveling through town. And I think very early on, I learned about kind of taking care of each other and believing in people. Um, and so, you know, whether it was a friend who had struggled with domestic violence or a kid who had been thrown out because, you know, her father was a um, struggling with substance use disorder um, we always had room at our house for folks. And so I think I, I grew up very early on believing that I should, that if I could, I should mm-hmm. to do something to help other people. Wow, and I've been very fortunate in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I'm in a position to do that. That's amazing. And just really makes you think about, you know, as we, all the things that we take in as kids about what's normal and what's a, you know, what's a normal, acceptable way to live. And for that to just be part of your upbringing where, you know, if there's someone who needs help, we bring them in and we help them. Um, Whereas I think in a lot of um, households, there may be a lot of fear for one reason or another of people who are unfamiliar or, you know, in need or homeless. And so um, that's just really beautiful and beautiful how you've then, you know, passed that along in your life. Yeah. And it definitely, you know, like it drove me into my career as a social worker. And I do believe that it has very strongly shaped um, my role at the Phoenix and and how we approach what we do. I'm grateful that I have this belief in people and can share that with, with others because we believe, and I know we'll get into it more, probably more questions, but just in the power of healing through community. Mm-hmm. And that when we bring people together, we can accomplish anything we put our minds to. Um, so it's been really beautiful to kind of see that thread kind of, kind of carry through in my life and in my work. 
Absolutely. I'm sure in many unexpected and surprising ways that you hadn't planned at first, but um, you mentioned how it led you to your career in social work. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that. And then just as you, you know, entered your career, went through education and started practicing, um, what were some of the things that you loved about it? And then what were some of the things that were maybe surprising? Because I think I can relate um, to, you know, career in medicine, starting to going to medical school, thinking it's going to be one thing. And then when you actually get out into the real world practice of it, there's a lot of things that are different that you didn't expect. Absolutely. Um, It's been an interesting journey. I am so grateful that I landed in social work as a profession, because I think the, the way you learn to think in an ecological manner and not kind of seeing you know, one person at fault or one thing is the problem, but that usually it's the um, dynamics and the interplay between many different factors that kind of create a situation or drive an outcome. And I think it really allowed me to think holistically in how I approach life, how I approach business, how I approach the Phoenix and in the clinical work that I did um, with children and families, how, how I how I did that. So I wasn't so narrowly focused on just brain and behavior or mm-hmm. on the medic- medical side of things, but I got to really think holistically. And in that, I also um, learned a lot about how, how to approach um, addressing challenges from a strengths-based perspective and the power of that. Uh, so it's been, I think, a gift in many, many ways and informed who I am, how I work and what I do. I think the challenges I see kind of within social work and within, you know, whether it's social services generally in our society is that there's very clear roles that people play. And there's a bit of an indoctrination into Mm -hmm. the culture of your agency. So if you're part of a school system, you think a particular way. If you're part of justice system, you think a particular way. Mm -hmm. And diagnosis is a perfect example. And we would partner in the mental health program I worked with, um, with folks who are in the justice system. Oftentimes we see kids who are diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder when really when you dig deep, it was about trauma and, and about kind of their economic situation and the challenges they had with their parents who were struggling with a substance use disorder or, uh, or was gang involved or in prison. And so it was always more than just that one thing. And so I think, you know, social work prepared me to think ecologically getting out in the work world. I started to realize that even though people thought they were on the same team, oftentimes they weren't and that they also weren't speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. And that because of that and sort of the incentives that come along with it, you know, the funding structures and the mandates for child welfare versus department of youth services versus the education system that they, they didn't often come together and they were constantly fighting for battling for resources or to be right. Um, and in that part, I thought was pretty ugly. Hmm. Frustrating when it seems like, you know, if everybody's on the same team, focused on helping people that it shouldn't be so hard. Right. Right. But there's always, there's always these other interests or other factors that, that play a role. Um, you gave it, you, you talked about, uh, this beautiful story of this patient who, um, in your TEDx talk. Um, and just her struggles going through this conventional system. Can you give, whether it's that person or someone else, just give an idea of what it's like for someone who's struggling with mental health health or substance abuse um, and the the type of help that they might get if they go to, um, you know, a conventional clinician or or agency? I think for some who are very lucky to have the resources or to miraculously find that that program, that is welcoming and doesn't require a huge financial commitment, you know, Mm -hmm. which are few, um, but they're out there. They're really lucky and they'll get great treatment and great care. And then for the rest of society, it's really about you, you have to have the money to be able to access Mm -hmm. the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And for those folks who are struggling with substance use disorder, the stigma is so huge. And the mental models that have driven that stigma are, so ingrained that it really creates um, a, a pretty negative and 
ugly environment at times. And so the woman who I was talking about, I can't remember how deep I went on the story in the TEDx <laughs> talk, but um, we went to enroll her in detox and it, you know, she was standing there, I'm standing there. And the guy at the door said, you know, do you have $350? Because if you don't have $350, you can't come in. Like mm-hmm. you have to be able to pay to get, to get in. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this person is ready now. She won't mm-hmm. be ready in an hour. In an hour, she's going to be begging for a Xanax or for, mm-hmm. you know, opiates or whatever to just numb the pain right now is when she's ready. And the fact that that was the response from the person at the door was just maddening. And those mental models around, you have to want it. um, You have to hit rock bottom. I think all of those things are a disservice. They really create this expectation that it's on um, the individual who's suffering to, um, to figure it all out. And they wouldn't be where they're at if they had it figured out. You know, they wouldn't, if they had resources, they wouldn't need help. Um, if they had um, the the wherewithal for their mind to be in a place where it could make wise decisions, they would make those wise decisions. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to live in a place where they're exploited. They, they just don't. So anyway, those sorts of mental models, I think, are challenging for the industry and really need to be changed because we have to figure out what's wrong with the industry and the system, mm-hmm. not so much what's wrong with the individual. Because right now in America, you know, the the, the overdose death rates are up, you know, like 30%. It's insane. Mm-hmm. And that can't be on the individual. There's something that we're doing wrong as a society if that's the outcome. And with substance use being tied so directly to pain, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that reflects our society that we live <laughs> in a society that is saying you don't deserve help and pain is part of normalcy. And if you can't figure out how to pull yourself up, that's your problem. When in fact, maybe it's society's problem. And, you know, all the stuff we have going on around equity and inclusion is just further evidence that we live in a society that isn't ready to deal with the fact that we are perpetrating pain on people and we're creating the mess. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So much there. Sorry. So much there. And that's so, I mean, it's so true. And so beautiful. It's like, what is, you know, what, what are the underlying societal factors that are contributing to this problem? And as we've, um, you know, seen even with, with COVID, with the pandemic, with all of these things that are even exacerbating and, um, maybe shining a light on, on how big of a problem they are. Um, I think it's, it's also something about a lot of these, um, just in general, our society becoming more and more impersonal or, or more and more, like you said, like everybody has sort of their job, but we lose touch with the person that's there and that's suffering and what their situation is. And I, I can definitely relate to, situations, even in residency, trying to find like how hard it is just to find a a detox facility or a place for someone to go, um, you know, in a relatively big city, I was in the city of Cleveland and it's, it's even when you're calling from a hospital, sometimes it's not always easy. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. So. No, it shouldn't. You know, I think it is reflective of the how isolated people are and how isolated they were before the pandemic Mm -hmm. and how isolated they are now, even, you know, more so with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and that it really is a a crisis of isolation more often than not. And for us at the Phoenix, and I think the thing I, one of the things I believe in most is the genuine connection is at the heart of healing. Mm -hmm. And so the more that we can bring people together the more likely we can create the opportunity for healing to happen, but alone in your bedroom or in your house, locked up in the dark, it's very hard. It's a yeah. scary place with you alone with, for anyone, you right. alone, just with your own thoughts. It's generally not going to be all kinds of stories. Can't we? <laughs> not yeah. going to be a healthy place for anybody. Yeah. Um, but that's a great segue maybe into talking about how you met Scott, who's the founder of the Phoenix and what it was about your interaction with him that really caught your attention. Yeah. I often joke that Phoenix found me. Um, <laughs> I was off 
focusing my time and energy on child mental health more than anything. And um, I had been working as a social worker, decided I was going to go back to graduate school and kind of go into the research side of, of social work and um, try and figure out how to improve outcomes for children and families. And at that same time, I met Scott and we were climbing partners. Uh, we started rock climbing together and then eventually ice climbing together. And as we kind of got to know one another out kind of adventuring, you know, he shared his story about being a person in recovery. Um, you know, he knew my story being, you know, a clinician and he just started talking about some ideas he had. And at that time, again, I was so committed to going back to school. I'm like, you should go do that. That sounds fantastic. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a no brainer. You have to go do it now. Go do it. And <laughs> I'll be your cheerleader. <laughs> I'll be your cheerleader. Exactly. And so he went off to Colorado and I was at Boston college working on my degree and we just kept talking, you know, the, there were, you know, there was the mission statement and then there was the, like the, how we were going to do this. And I would go and I do the lit review and then I'd use it as a paper. And then I would help him kind of figure mm -hmm. out how we can shape the model for the Phoenix. And, and it just kept going back and forth like that. And eventually I went out to Colorado, actually helped launch the programming out there. And then, um, and then that was it. I stayed, I went back, finished my PhD, um, decided not to pursue academia and instead ended up really leading the business side of the organization to where it is today. That's amazing. Well, what was it? I mean, that had to have been a little bit of a scary decision. You just finished your PhD. You had this sort of plan to go into academia. What was it about the Phoenix that really kind of pulled at your heart and said, no, this is the path I need to take. I believe in this. Yeah, I think in the early days, I was very intellectualizing kind of the mm -hmm. model. You know, I had the theory and I had these ideas that I thought would be true. And then as we actually saw the magic unfold and people's lives were transformed and we were collecting data from day one and we started seeing that actually relapse rates were very low, um, his, a, a, Across time, we've sustained right around an 85% sobriety rate at three and six months, That's which, amazing. you know, is pretty, pretty good. Um, and do you have, do you have stats on what, like a general population you would expect or no? Yeah. I mean, it's messy that, you know, there's not a lot of transparency from treatment organizations. Mm -hmm. um, there are about 24 million people in America who are living in sobriety, how they got there is very different because only about 10% of people actually access treatment. Mm -hmm. The only stats that are really out there are treatment-based stats. And those show that um, on average, um, the vast majority or somewhere between 40 and 70% of people relapse within the first, first year. And that most of those people who relapse actually relapse within the first two weeks of leaving treatment. Wow. And so, you know, it's comparing apples to oranges, but it's something to kind of ballpark off of. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we're looking at. And we're still doing a lot of research. We're in the process of partnering with the Recovery Research Institute at Harvard right now on a study, a proof of concept study that will dig a little deeper into, you know, like who's coming, what they're doing, what, what are the mechanisms of change, um, and kind of what is their what does their journey look like um, so that we can really start building out a, a broader science base for the model. Got it. And sorry, let's back up. What is, so you said it started to be the magic of what the Phoenix is that really captivated you. What is the right. magic? Can you tell us about how it yes. works and, and how these people's lives are being transformed? So I'll just, I'll, I'll start with a story and then I'll kind of break into the magic. Yeah. Um, we were at the Boulder Rock Club in Boulder, Colorado, and a group of four individuals um, came over. They had gone to a 12-step meeting, heard about the Phoenix, walked over to our open climbing night and decided they were going to climb. There was a woman um, in that group and she had been in the military in the past, had been kicked out of the military because of her substance use disorder. And she stood at the bottom of the wall and she looked up at the climbing wall and she said, I don't think I can do this. I just, there's no way I can do this. And, and we said, that's okay. You just put on the harness, check it out. If you want to just watch, just watch. 
So she puts on the harness and you could tell she really wanted to give it a try. <laughs> and she's looking up at the wall and she's like, okay, I'll try, but, but you got to let me down. When I say I want to come down and let me down, of course, we're going to let you down. So she ties in and she starts to climb and she raced to the top of the wall and she got to the top of the wall and she threw her arms in the air and she just screamed. And when she came down, she burst into tears and she said, when I got kicked out of the military, I thought my life was over. And now I really think, I think I'm going to be okay. And, you know, it was one of those moments where you're like, this climb just did that? Like, really? And I don't think it was the magic of the climb, but it was the magic of being present, believing in people, providing a, a, a place where people could take risks and do things that, that challenge themselves. And, and so we see that story play out every day, whether it's um, a gentleman who was homeless living behind our building in Champa who does Olympic lifting and later comes back to tell us that it was Olympic lifting that gave him the courage to go out and get a job after being homeless for 10 years, um, or this woman in the military. And, and those stories happen every day. And we see the magic, the magic in the middle is what we call psychological safety. And so if we can create an environment where everybody feels physically and emotionally safe, that's inclusive and accessible, where they can have fun and they can take risks, that environment will allow them to heal themselves. And for them to see others in the community who are healing as well, they now see that there are other ways and that this is not just about them alone in their home, that there's a whole world out there. And so hope and optimism increase significantly. So it really comes down to that, the environment and the culture that we create, where we believe in people and we ensure everything is physically and emotionally safe. That's amazing. And just to think about how many people are constantly living, especially who've experienced trauma, but who are living in a constant fight or flight state in this constant yeah. state of vigilance and feeling like, you know, it's very unsafe. So right. just by creating this safe environment, just seeing what a long way that can go. And then the, you know, the ripples that it has by the relationships, by the inspiration, by the friendships, accountability, all of those different things that just naturally happen as a result. Um, right. That's amazing. And it's the community that keeps on giving, right? Cause once you build these friendships, they don't just turn off. Like you get married and they're the best man at your wedding or they're the, you know, the godparent to your child, you know, like the people you meet are there rooting for you for the rest of your life. That's amazing. So how does it work? Let's say I, um, am struggling with substance use and I decide that I want help and I walk into the Phoenix. How, where do I go from there? You walk in, people welcome you in. Um, if you're here at our Boston site, that might be Dina. And you know, <laughs> she's at the door with a smile saying, hey, sister, come on in. And she welcomes you in and we get you signed up real quick. It's super easy. We have an app now. So if you want to share, like people can go and download this app and you can just join the Phoenix within, I think it's like two clicks. Takes very little to actually become a member of the Phoenix and it's Amazing. free. So you walk in, you sign up, and then we get you going. We get you into the activity. There's, we want to minimize the amount of barriers so that when people are ready to connect, we're there and ready and willing and able. And so you're always welcome to the time, as soon as you walk in. And if you're coming for CrossFit or yoga or we're doing a run, um, usually people circle up. They'll kind of share who they are, do a little overview of the Phoenix culture. We have some, some community standards that we put in place and we want to make them really explicit so that people understand that it's going to be a safe environment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even some small things we try to pay attention to, you know, when people have struggled with trauma, you know, really loud noises, swearing, some of those things that are really dramatic can be really intimidating. So we just try to talk about some of that stuff so that, again, we're creating this environment where everybody feels safe. Um, sometimes there's an, an icebreaker. People want to loosen you up a little bit, but then we just mm -hmm. get into the workout or we get onto the wall and we just start doing. And it's in those moments where you start to build those relationships. And so it's not about coming in and having to talk. It's really just come in and do and the rest will happen because you'll have the relationship. And when it's the right time to talk, you'll talk. 
Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, so I know you have CrossFit classes and have uh, worked with CrossFit, but, and you mentioned yoga and climbing. What are some of the other activities? Are these things that are happening, you know, all day? Are there certain yep. classes or how is it all organized? Yeah, it's really pretty cool when you think about our evolution. We started in Boulder, Colorado with adventure sports and endurance sports. So hiking, climbing, running, marathons, triathlons, that's how we launched. And then we scaled into urban settings and we added gym-based sports. So that's the CrossFit and the yoga and meditation and boxing. Mm -hmm. And um, more recently, we just added on music, which I'm super excited about because, you know, the idea here is like, we know physical activity is is really healthy for people, but so is music. And so we, we want to find those sorts of meaningful activities that have some intrinsic value for people. And then we, we leverage those to help people kind of create community. Um, and during the pandemic, we also added in a bunch of social activities. Uh, we expanded to do virtual programming. So we now have in-person programming in 30 states and 90 communities. And we're offering uh, about, I think we're, we're right around 60 classes a week or events a week virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through our on-demand programming, we're actually now in over 140 prisons. And mm-hmm. so our goal really is to be available to anyone, anywhere. And so we're diversifying everything we do so that people can access that. So back to your question, it depends on where you're at. If you come Mm -hmm. to Boston, you're going to find CrossFit and yoga and climbing. But if you go to Boise, Idaho, it's going to be an awful lot of um, mountain biking and running. And if you're in Southern California, you're going to find surfing and paddleboarding. So it really is depending on where you're at what kind of activities you're going to find. So cool. So cool. And then you said everything just sort of happens naturally from there. The conversations happen as they come up. Um, What are some of the things that you see happening as a result that maybe were anticipated or unanticipated? Hmm. I think what we hear from our members more often than not is that they find family And it's not the family they came from, but the family they wanted, where because it's safe, they can be who they are and they feel loved, which makes them want to come back. And so that's what we hoped we'd create. And I think it's reassuring to know that that's what's happening. I think some of the things we didn't anticipate was how much people loved this. Mm-hmm. and how much they wanted it. And while I thought it was a no-brainer, there's actually thousands of other people who thought it was a no-brainer too. <laughs> and, you know, I'm proud of our outcomes, but but the proof is actually in the poll, right? We are now, we've served almost 80,000 people since we launched in right around 2007. And we are ramping up to reach a million people by 2025. And not only are we across the US, but we're actually global now. We have programs happening in Canada, in India, in uh, Ireland. We're about to launch some programming in the UK and Australia. You know, we can't stop this thing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that was going to (laughs) happen. That it was going to be such a force. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, it is amazing just, you know, coming from the CrossFit community and CrossFit world, it's these things that that maybe weren't necessarily anticipated from CrossFit either, that it started as this way to work out in this fitness methodology, but what really made it take off was the community. It was yeah. the things that happened naturally by getting people together and and doing things that push them outside their comfort zone and and maybe allowed them to do things they didn't think they could do. And um, overcoming obstacles and gaining confidence. And, and we, I think we see that, you know, for so many different types of people who walk in the doors of a CrossFit affiliate, but to know that there's a place that has such a low barrier to entry. I think that's one of the things we struggle with in CrossFit so much is that it's, you know, it's expensive. Um, 
you know, I, it's all relative, but it's, you know, it's not free. And so there is a barrier to entry there. And there's also this intimidation factor, um, which is big. And so I think just knowing that there's this really safe space where people know that they can be themselves and be open about who they are and the things that they're struggling with is um, really incredible. And I hope that that's something that we can sort of build on and extend in the CrossFit community as a whole. Well, and I would actually say YAR, like the CrossFit community is one of the beautiful things about the CrossFit community is that it's always been, um, you know, philanthropic and committed to giving back to their community and fundraisers have happened in CrossFit gyms, Mm -hmm. I think since the beginning of time. And, you know, for us, we're probably, I don't want to misquote this, but I think we've, how many gyms are we in now? across, I have to look it up. I, I want to say 80, but I, I'm not sure. So we have been met with a lot of love from the CrossFit world and people mm-hmm. have opened their doors. And so what is an expensive and um, uh, kind of probably a lucrative business for some, um, it's still hard business to make money, but it's mm-hmm. lucrative. Um, they've opened their doors for free for Phoenix. And so we have gyms across the country and in Canada who are opening their gyms to us uh, an hour a week, sometimes several hours a week, they're um, allowing their instructors to teach the courses sometimes mm-hmm. and, and they're offering it for free. And, and so I think that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, CrossFit, you know, the CrossFit community is on the front front of this really taking on this challenge and it's, uh, it's to be commended. Yes, it is amazing. It's good. It attracts good people and it allows people to get together and be themselves and, and, and good things come from that. I think absolutely, Um, that's really amazing. So those classes are those, um, are those then partnered with Phoenix locations that you have or part of the sort of virtual program that people can drop into or how does that work? Yeah. So Phoenix happens, you know, we have a couple of brick and mortars where we run our own programming in our own gyms. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of our programming happens out in the community in borrowed spaces. So we um, have been networking within the CrossFit community, identifying different gyms. I think one of the very first gyms we partnered with was Fearless Athletics in Philly, Mm -hmm. and they opened their doors and said, of course, we'll run some free programming here for the Phoenix. And at various points, we've had multiple programs running out of their facility, including yoga. And so, yeah, it's, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the actual question you asked, but it's <laughs> been a, a really wild ride with CrossFit. And I just think that it's, it's, it's going to allow us to actually scale worldwide because there mm-hmm. are, there's CrossFit everywhere. That's so true. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, so a lot of the, the locations are, sort of say I live right now, I live in Lexington, Kentucky. And so this is sort of a group, but sometimes we meet and do do yoga. Sometimes we meet and go to a CrossFit gym. Sometimes we go hiking or climbing or whatever. Exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. And the vast majority of our instructors are, um, are volunteers. Mm -hmm. So in our brick and mortar locations, we'll have more paid staff because we just need to activate the space more consistently. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what we're doing is we're actually recruiting training and supporting volunteers around the country who raise their hand and say, I want to do programming. And so it could be a gym owner and an instructor who raise their hands in Kentucky and say, Hey, we'd like to offer an hour of free programming a week we train them and provide support and we do all the calendar postings and we do some marketing and help people find them. Um, and then they do the work. That's great. That's great. And are most of your, how are the groups, um, run or structured? I, from the people that I've met, um, so far, it seems like a lot of people who become members of the Phoenix then go on to become coaches or coordinators or become involved. So it's very much like, you know, when you walk in, you know, everyone you're going to encounter, like understands your situation. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of our, our instructors, our volunteer instructors come from our member base, but not all. Mm -hmm. Um, But everybody goes through a process where, you know, they're expected to 
attend some programming so they they know what it's like. They go through mm-hmm. the training. Um, it really is by showing up and being a member that you really understand the magic of Phoenix and how powerful it is. And so we really encourage people to to be members and be volunteers because that's mm-hmm. where you know that magic happens when they can share what worked for them with other people. Absolutely. And then let's say someone is a member and they are looking for resources, whether it's mental health resources or counseling or, or anything, how, how does that happen? Is it sort of a just conversations or are there referral networks or how do people find different resources that they may need? Yeah, it's, primarily informal. There are also some formal opportunities. So in a place like Boston, where we have this beautiful facility, we're able to partner with a lot of treatment centers and other recovery organizations. So they'll come in and actually do climbing privately for their their clients, or we'll go to their um, facilities and do a yoga class. Mm-hmm. Um, those opportunities allow us to build relationships with treatment providers. And so when somebody's struggling, we're able to say, Hey, Joe, why don't you check out, you know, this treatment center over here, mm-hmm. they've done some really great work and, you know, you can trust them. And I think too, when you talked about how hard it is as an ER doc, being able to get somebody into treatment, this allows us to pick up the phone and say, Hey, you know, we've got this member who really mm-hmm. needs to get in. Can you help them? And they're like, Oh yeah. Like, well, we don't have an opening, but my, my friend over here has an opening. We'll get them in over there. Like people will go the extra mile when you have that genuine connection. Mm-hmm. And they also have seen the benefit for their clients being a part of Phoenix. So they want to kind of partner with us. Um, so that's more of the, I, I would say formal way, like our staff and our volunteers know who those organizations are and those people the vast majority happens just through our members. You know, Mm -hmm. they become friends with one another. They share what 12 step meetings are really good, what churches are really welcoming, what treatment Mm -hmm. centers were really helpful and which ones weren't. And so, you know, it's, it's, we don't have to have a Yelp uh, technology (laughs) to share that kind of information. It happens naturally in our community. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so much, you know, I also just love the, like you said, creating this safe space, but also just the the model of people helping each other who've already walked the path or who are on the path helping each other. I think it's so much more powerful and effective than help coming from someone who hasn't been there themselves oftentimes. Yeah. I mean, it's no one's here to, to judge. They're just here to mm-hmm. walk along and reach back into that burning building and help that person escape who mm-hmm. you know is suffering. And, and that's just the culture that we've created. There's, you know, we don't place expectations on anyone, but we do really kind of hold this value of helping one another as, mm-hmm. as important to the community. Um, so when people can, they do, and that's the magic. It's amazing. What do you think is the biggest barrier to getting more people just to walk through the doors? I, you know, I think there's an assumption that treatment is the way and that we need more treatment beds. Um, We need more medication assisted services. Like all of that is true, but there's a lot of people who get sober. And frankly, if we could keep them there, if we could keep them in recovery, there'd be a lot less need for some Mm -hmm. of those other services. And so I think that by kind of just focusing on kind of those formal treatments, we're missing out on that opportunity to keep people there who have already kind of started on the path. Um, And so that's one, I I would just say it's, you know, people aren't investing as much in recovery uh, as they are in, in the treatment side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, the other thing that's really challenging is the stigma. We talk about uh, the door to walk into a Phoenix is like a 5,000 pound door um, because people have been met with so many kind of times when they've been judged or shamed or, you know, told that they hadn't hit that rock bottom yet, um, that, that it's scary to walk in the mm-hmm. door. And so some people don't. There's a woman I knew back in Boulder in the early days who drove past the climbing gym five weeks in a row before she had the courage to just walk in. 
Mm-hmm. And so it really is like trying to get the awareness out there that it's safe, it's free, and that everyone will be welcomed is 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 what we're trying to do. Because if we can get people to walk in the door, we know they'll find what they need here. And mm-hmm. if that's a pathway to treatment, then fantastic. If it's a pathway to 12-step, fantastic. If it's just Phoenix by itself, that's fantastic too, because everybody needs what everybody needs and it's different. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's the, always the challenge, right? It's always the first step is the hardest step. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, anything else that you'd like to share about um, just experiences that you've seen, ways that people's lives have been changed um, from being a Phoenix member? Um, I think that it's, you know, it may be a bit repetitive, but you can't overstate the power of giving back. You know, when people are struggling, they hate themselves, they feel weak, they feel broken. And when they can help someone else, there's mm-hmm. a sense of meaning that mm-hmm. you start to see that ember grow within someone. And so I just, I think the more that we can believe in people and very quickly, you know, somebody who's got 48 hours can be greeting somebody at the door. Everybody Mm -hmm. has a role to play. And the more that we can let people play those roles, the more likely they are to come back and, and stick with it. Um, Yeah. I love that. Just having so true, just having more meaning or purpose and being able to give, in any way, it gives you that. Um, and, and also having that environment where it's, it's not like you're walking into a treatment facility or someplace where you are the patient, like you were right. a person and you're walking in to have fun and get to know people who, you know, and build friendships. Yeah. yeah. And do fun workouts or activities or whatever it might be. Yeah. I think um, sometimes people just think that Phoenix must not really have value because it's just a bunch of people having fun. And then somehow (laughs) it's about kind of the, the hard work that you have to do in treatment that, that matters most, Mm -hmm. but you know, this as an athlete and a doctor, like if you don't sleep, you don't recover. And same thing here. If you don't laugh and have fun and have hope doing the work is just that much harder. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to have that reprieve. That's beautiful. What are some of the ways, so this is, like you said, it's free for everybody who walks in the door. So what are some of the ways that you um, raise money or that people listening could maybe support the effort, whether it's time, money, resources, support? That's one of my favorite questions. So <laughs> you can go to the phoenix.org and just click donate. The donate button is right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also click on volunteer now. And those are the two best ways to get involved mm-hmm. because Phoenix is trying to scale quickly. And we're really investing in our volunteer strategy to do that. Um, it, it's going to take, it's going to take us all. And so we'd like to recruit and, have about 10,000 volunteers in the next two years. So we've got a goal this year of Um, Mm 2,000. We'd like to exceed that goal because if we can get 2,000 new volunteers, that equates to potentially 2,000 new programs. And if you imagine, you know, if each one of those can serve at minimum, like 150 people, like the, Mm -hmm. the numbers start to magnify. So volunteering is huge. And I, I want to just say too, you know, as the Phoenix has grown and expanded, we have learned a lot about what makes for kind of a, a meaningful experience for a volunteer and kind of what is needed from a volunteer. And it doesn't have to be someone who's in recovery. Um, I'm not a person in recovery. I came to this work as a clinician first, um, but I am a person who's been significantly impacted. My mother struggled with alcoholism. I've got other family members who have struggled with alcohol and drugs. Um, some of who are challenged today. Um, mm-hmm. And so you don't have to be in recovery. I think, you know, the, the, some of the most meaningful um, community 
leaders that we've had have been folks who just brought love and and respect and care. Um, so it's how you show up and that matters most. So you don't have to be in recovery. Go, you can click volunteer now, get mm-hmm. trained and volunteer. So if you want to lead a run in Washington, D.C., or you want to do a hike in the White Mountains, or you want to do some music in Louisiana, go click volunteer now and we'll help you figure out how to do that. That's amazing. And do you have to, if there's no location mm-hmm. near where you live, can you still volunteer? Is there other ways to do it virtually? Absolutely. So you can start a location. So mm-hmm. if, you know, if you wanted to start something in Kentucky, we would just get you trained and bring some marketing support alongside, have a volunteer coordinator, help you get it going. And we just fuel you um, to do that and support you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have our volunteer program or a virtual program. So I think I mentioned about 60 classes a week and we're always expanding. Um, we have this vision of having, you know, sort of like a yoga channel where yoga is happening all day, you know, our awesome. CrossFit channel where it's happening all day, music yeah. all day. Right now, it's just a spattering of different programs happening um, with some socials and some book clubs and game nights and all kinds of things. So there's a low barrier here for volunteering. You could be someone like a, a, a CrossFit coach who has a level two or three or whatever, do specialized kind of programming. That's cool. You can also be somebody who has no certs, lead a game night, or be a person who's a second on an event who's there to support mm-hmm. because we need those, those additional people who are just keeping eyes on and making sure that people feel welcomed um, and having fun. So we need everybody. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to say right here on the podcast that I'm going to commit to clicking that button and signing up as a volunteer. I don't know in what capacity, but, um, and I would love, love to see, um, I was looking on the map earlier today and notice it doesn't look like there's any locations in Kentucky and there's obviously a huge need, especially in Eastern Kentucky, which I was lucky to visit this summer. And so I would love to see what I can do to make that happen. <laughs> so that anyone listening, yeah, who also has a passion for Kentucky, reach out to me. We'll make it happen. That would be amazing. We have a whole crew of people who are interested in seeing Kentucky and West Virginia get some yeah. love. Yeah. Um because it's been they've been just horribly decimated by the opioid crisis in particular. Mm-hmm. And we've been targeting our, most of our virtual not some marketing around our virtual programming into those communities because we haven't had people raise their hands yet, but if you get people to raise their hands, we'll make it happen. All right. We'll make it happen. I love it. Um, cool. Well, I wanted to wrap up with three questions. I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. So the first one is what are the three things that you do Jackie on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Um, I think the first one is I play with my kid. Yeah. I have the best kid in the world <laughs> and she makes me smile. And uh, I just look forward to playing with her every Aww. day. That's um, amazing. How old is she? She's eight. Oh, so fun. Yeah. So much fun. We're skiing, we're mountain biking. <laughs> it's amazing. And so that probably leads to those other things is we just try to stay active. Um, mm-hmm. During the summer months in particular, we sail and that's huge. We're outside, we're breathing in fresh air, mm-hmm. we're, you know, kind of getting after it and sailing yep. and going to different places and having adventures. And then, um, you, you say know, you seem so adventurous between ice climbing and sailing. Those are not uh, things that you just, <laughs> you know, hear of every day. <laughs> no, 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 they're not. But I feel like I'm just lucky to have an amazing life and I want to live it as big as I possibly can. And I want to show my daughter that she can do anything that she wants to do. Um, so she helps us sail the boat even at night, which is really That's cool. Amazing. Yeah. So cool. So did I get that? Let me see. I got uh, those two things. Family so one more thing and that helps. Active music, dancing. Oh, we it. dance all the time in my house. We dance while we're brushing our teeth. It's so much that fun. That is yeah. awesome. Music is that is always happening. <laughs> I need to do more of that. I, I went through a phase where I did a lot of that, but I need that's a great way to start the day. Um yeah. that's awesome. I that reminds me of the one YouTube video that went around of the little girl on her um bathroom sink, just like singing and telling yourself in the mirror, how she loves herself. And yes. She has the best day. And today's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like I need to, I need to start my day like that every day. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Yep. Yep. It's, it's so much fun. We start and end our day that way. So. <laughs> what is one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but something that you're working on or something you have a hard time implementing? Mm. I would say just daily exercise for big adventurers, but I get pretty kind of like mm, sucked into the work. I'm so passionate about it that my head gets spinning and I start doing instead of taking some time out for myself. So I'd love to be a bit more consistent in my running and my climbing and that sort of thing. I think that's a a push and pull that everybody's challenged with. It's always hard to find the right, the right balance. Yeah. What last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? A healthy life is connected with other people because meaning happens in connection. Um, it's being out and doing. I just, I have this sort of mental kind of mantra to myself that's just go, you know? Um, so I think you have to just, just go, just try things, just live. Uh, yeah. I love that. So I connection that. and just go. Just go, just do it. Don't, don't worry if you feel a little afraid or if you have all these voices in your head, just give it a shot. <laughs> Absolutely. Cause those voices, sometimes they're really wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're wrong. You got to step right over them. Try. <laughs> yep. yep. Amazing. Well, I have enjoyed this so much, Jackie. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and just sharing your heart and your passion for all this work. It is incredible to see. And I'm excited to see where you are, you know, a few years from now with your 10,000 volunteers and locations all over the world. And yeah. I'm excited for, to be more involved in volunteer. And so I'll report back on how that goes to everybody. That's awesome. I can't wait for all those things to happen too. And for Kentucky to come online. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's make it happen. All right. Thank you all so right. much. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.